Have you got the same love for Warsaw Football Club as your, your deluded child, son and uh, grandson? Is that one? It's Stan, yeah. Is that one? I use that one. You haven't, answered, you haven't answered the question, Jeff. Do you, do you support Warsaw Football Club? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. We, we, we've, we've got the prayer ministry later, right? So we can, we can work that one out of you. All right. Yeah. Okay, bless you. Well, thank you for your welcome. Uh, there was a time when people used to say, oh, Joe, uh, that's Jeff's son. And of course now they say, oh, Jeff, that's Joe's dad. You know, the, the balance has shifted and the, the sort of the perception has changed. As we've already heard, we are continuing uh, or restarting the series that uh, you were following last year from Romans chapter 8, from the book of Romans. This morning, we're looking at Romans chapter 8. And um, it's uh, a key chapter. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you will remember him, a very uh, well-known preacher, influential preacher from the mid-20th century, he believed that chapter 8 was the pivotal chapter of the whole epistle, that all the other chapters revolved around chapter 8. And he, he spent, I think it was 13 years, preaching on the epistle to the Romans, the Friday night Bible study at Westminster Chapel in London. And I think he spent something like 18 months just on this chapter alone. So there's obviously a lot to get through. There's obviously a great deal of content in this chapter. And, uh, you know, it would be impossible for me to do justice to it uh, in, that, uh, in the way that he did. Uh, what I want to do, therefore, is to focus particularly on one verse. I will refer to a number of other verses as we go through the message and to focus on one verse to give some sort of shape and some kind of... Um, uh, coherence to the message this morning. Uh, he believed, Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that the word therefore in verse 1 was, you've heard the old saying, haven't you? Yeah, some of you are nodding. Do I need to say it? Some of you are not nodding. When you, when you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? And it is a help, helpful to to do that, actually, to ask yourself and to consider the significance of this verse. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that it wasn't just a therefore following on from the previous chapter, but from the previous seven chapters of the epistle. So all that you did uh, previously last year in your studies on chapters one to seven uh, now come together in this chapter. So verse one says, there is therefore no no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Just those two words, and Kevin has emphasized it this morning, no condemnation. Now, we, as we acquire our language skills and we develop our vocabulary, we probably rarely remember the occasion when we first encountered particular words or phrases. But I can remember very clearly when I and where and how I first came across the word condemnation. Actually, it was the word condemned, but obviously they are, are similar. Uh, there was a bit of a scandal in my hometown in Wales when one of the local butchers was found guilty of selling condemned meat. 
Now, I'd never heard of condemned meat. I uh, asked, I'd heard of condensed milk, but <laughs> condemned meat was something different. And I asked my mother what condemned meat was. And she said, well, it's meat that is not fit for consumption. It's unhealthy. It possibly was diseased. It didn't meet the standards of uh, hygienic uh, quality. And it was only fit to be destroyed. It had no value otherwise. It was fit only to be destroyed. So you can appreciate when I came across this verse, there is no condemnation. The impact of these words in the context of what my mama told me about the word condemned, that far from having no value, far from being fit only to be destroyed, far from having uh, 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 no worthwhile place, that I was now free from that condemnation. As a young Christian, there was now no condemnation. And I want to uh, take you to the question that Paul asks later in the chapter, and I don't know whether things are appearing behind me, yes they are, where he says, he says in the chapter, who can condemn? Who can condemn us? And then he answers emphatically, no one. And that's the, the direction I want to take this morning in terms of the fact that no one can condemn us. And first of all, God does not condemn us. God does not condemn us. Just need to clarify what I'm saying here. There's a bit of a sort of an idea these days. You hear people say, oh, well, God loves me the way I am. And it's true because if God didn't love us as the way we are, lost and sinful, there would be no hope for us. If, we, if he did not love us, there would be no way in which we could persuade God to love us. As, again, as we've heard this morning, there is no way in which we would gain his favor and earn his approval. We would be lost. So, yes, thank God does love us the way that we are. But what people are saying today is something along, along the lines of, well, God loves me the way I am. I don't need to change. I may have a bad temper, but God loves me the way I am. I may have an immoral lifestyle, but God loves me the way I am. Now, that's not what God's love is all about. God's love seeks to change us. God's love seeks to restore us. Far from being condemned, far from being rejected, far from being consigned to judgment and condemnation, his purpose for us is redemption. The great theme of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation, the redemption not only of us as individuals, but of his whole creation. Reclamation, turning rubbish, if you like, into salvage. The, the, uh, the, the, the policy uh, uh, that was used in the Second World War, that nothing went to waste. Everything that could be used was restored and put to good purpose. Restoration and restitution. So that's God's purpose. God's love isn't so that we can stay as we are and continue in our failures and in our sins. God's love is to transform us and make us new creatures. God does not condemn us because the, John tells us in his gospel that the world is already condemned. So Christ didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. After the first act of sin that we read about in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, then the world has been under condemnation. And God's purpose is to lift the world and to lift us 
out of that condemnation. How does he do this? Well, we've already declared that this morning when we took communion. God sent his son to die for us. Again, if we look at Romans, uh, the third chapter, he says what? That he condemns sin in the flesh. And going on to verse four, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. God does condemn sin. And he condemns sin in the flesh, in the body of Christ. The purpose of his death is to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to the Father. And God spared not his son, we read later in the chapter. Uh, I think the authorized version says, God gave up his son so that we should receive this gift of salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing the condemnation that we deserved. He was dying in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And this is the love of God, says Paul in Romans chapter 5. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this morning, possible that someone has come into this service never having received this gracious gift of salvation, never having turned to Christ to receive forgiveness and to know his mercy. And if there is that one, maybe one individual, maybe two or three people in this service this morning, before I go any further with the message, it is to encourage you to see that when Christ died on the cross, that was not just an event in history, but it was something relevant to your condition. One preacher once said, to say that Christ died is history. To say that Christ died for the world is theology. But to say that Christ died for my sins is salvation. Christ died for you. You need not continue in this condition of condemnation, but receive forgiveness from him this very morning. So God does not condemn us. Secondly, Satan cannot condemn us. Again, in the later part of the epistle to the Romans, I don't know why Paul wrote it this way. It would be much clearer if he'd done it the way I'm doing it. <laughs> but he says later in Romans, and I didn't put the references down because they're on the screen there as well. He says, who can lay any charge to God's chosen? Who can lay, who can bring any kind of accusation? And he says, and then Paul goes on to say, it is, uh, the implication of his question, of course, is that no one can, as we've already seen. And he says, it is God who justifies. Now, the word justification, or the word justified, again, there's a very well-known explanation for what justified means. And people often say, oh, justified, it means it's just as if I'd never sinned. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very clever little sort of uh, aid to understanding what it means, but I've never felt it told the full story. And Satan comes and accuses us, and that's what the name Satan means, accuser of the brethren. It's not so much a name as a job description, really. He is the accuser of the brethren. And there's a, a passage in the book of Zechariah. I just want you to uh, uh, turn to it if you have, and then if it's on the 
screen. You can see the words up there. It's a, a vision that the prophet has. He showed, the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. First of all, I want you to notice that the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Satan's trying to accuse Joshua. God isn't listening. The Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. I don't know what you're talking about. And then it says that Joshua was clothed in filthy garments. And God says, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said, see, I have removed, I have taken away your sin. So the filthy garments are obviously a picture of Joshua's sin. Not Joshua from the one that fought the Battle of Jericho. This is a different Joshua. But Joshua's filthy rags are taken away from him. And God says, I have taken away your sin. So the filthy rags are a picture of Joshua's sin. I'm not going to imagine Joshua saying, hey, that's great. I'm justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned because my sins have been taken away. Hang on, says God. I haven't finished. And he goes on to say, I've taken away your sin. I will clothe you with clean clothes or rich clothes. So justification isn't just a matter of, you know, as if you'd never sinned. It's something more positive, something more wonderful than that. The New Testament tells us that we are clothed, not physically with clean clothes, but we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So justification means, not just as if I'd never sinned, but it's just I'd lived a absolutely perfect life fulfilling the law of God in every respect. Justification means that you stand before God absolutely righteous. That's how God sees you. That's how you appear before God this morning. Because when he sees you, as the song we used to sing says, when he sees you, he's not looking at you, he sees Jesus. You are as perfect in God's eyes as the Son of God in his perfection and sinlessness. It might be hard to accept that, but that's what the Bible tells us. That's how we appear in God's eyes. And the remarkable thing is that that righteousness is absolute and complete. You are complete in him, says Paul to the Colossians. Now, whatever I may have achieved in serving God, whatever good I may have done, whatever people I may have blessed and helped, and I know I'm perhaps I'm assuming a lot there, but whatever may have been accomplished and done, I am no more righteous this morning than I was when I first came to Christ. Because I was as righteous then as I am now. Righteousness is total and complete. And so what God has done for us is to make us righteous in his eyes. In the book of Revelation, there's a verse that's often, well, I say quoted, it's often misquoted, where it talks about believers overcoming Satan by the blood of the Lamb and, their word, and the word of their testimony. And people have misunderstood that and think that the blood is a kind of, almost like a lucky charm. You know, that, that sort of uh, protects us from ill fortune and uh, uh, accidents and so on. People praying for the covering of the blood when they go on a journey. That's not what the blood is for. The blood doesn't protect us from evil. It doesn't even protect us from Satan. 
The blood protects us from the wrath of God as it did the children of Israel during the feast of the Passover that we read about in Exodus. When it says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, it means that they answered his accusations by demonstrating that they were clean through the blood of the lamb. His accusations had no weight, carried no authority because they were clean. Not just the blood of the lamb, but the word of their testimony, their experience of righteousness. So God does not condemn us. Satan cannot condemn us. And thirdly, we need not condemn ourselves. We need not condemn ourselves. And probably this is where the greatest source of condemnation comes from. We fall into self-condemnation. We beat ourselves up. We are paying too much attention to Satan's accusations. But we need people largely, mainly with anxiety issues. And they're, they're worried. They're like a form of committed that they have done something Miriam consider so dreadful here this morning and you're worrying you've committed the unforgivable sin you haven't about it because if you committed the unforgivable sin your heart would be so hardened your uh, uh, attitude would be sight have committed the unforgivable sin so put that to one side we can forget it if you had but we call we often fall into self experience of Paul and we identify out in the latter part of chapter 7 and I'm sure again you're familiar with the passage and is and the evil that I wish I couldn't do or didn't do that in the heart and in the soul of Paul now for centuries people have debated this question is Paul's constant unbeliever inability to do the good that he wants to do or is he writing a believer, as someone who, I believe it's the latter. Because before Paul became a Christian, he the one. So the battle going on in his mind, as far as he was concerned, what the law had commanded, little going on. But an exception describes about this tension, this pulling up in two directions, but doing it as if his soul was almost like a particular event war battleground, say, on the Western Front, it's called the most fought over. I went there. We took uh, Joe and Jake, the 60. Then a little disappointing because it's not a hill. It's not like Mount Beacon or Dudley Bunkers. actually created from the earth that they dug out for a railway cutting. Whichever side had control gave them an advantage overlooking the enemy's front line. Constantly. And so this piece of... Now, some of you remember... Caleb Beardsmore, Beardsmore, one time minister of Upper Christian, and talking to him about it and mentioned that I'd been to Hill 60, he says, Oh, yes, I was in a, for the fact that I entered under the corpse of one of my comrades. You think awful and dreadful that must be. But the point of this story that somewhere around about 1959, Caleb Beardsmore, and a young lass, nine years old, received Christ, Christ of God. Caleb even knew the Lord, God had his hand upon him. Now, as I say, that's slightly tangent. As I say, you know, we feel that we can, we are going, that preachers often come up with the wrong solution. So often they tell their congregations, yes, of that and so on. We've got to stop doing this. It's futile. Because if we would do wrong and do what would be right and do that in addition, 
The answer is this. Remember what I've said that way as well also. How God, read carefully through the book of Romans, that's essentially what Paul is saying, that with this will also bring life to our mortal bodies. That, it's about having this new life, this, this, this new principle, this new power with it. If our mind enables us on that which is above, that we are with Christ. That's true. We are in God's eyes, it says in Romans 6, reckon yourselves dead to sin, alive unto Christ. Don't always get it right that we give way to temptation. We're not preaching perfection and total Then as a, but the man thinks, so he is. You will begin to become what your God talks about being glorified, about the redemption of our bodies. So, you know, you don't need to be, you don't need to buy a book that says 10 secrets to successful Christian living. God sees you. The secret is quite open and completely righteous in God. The first time I ever flew, uh, Heathrow to New York and then on to Kingston. Uh, I'd never flown before. Things, you know, a central from anyway and two or three seats on either side. But the plane, and I got on, was a jumbo just the back of the plane to start with. Another, and then another row of seats. And I thought, how on earth is it greater than the first flight that the Wright brothers made? In uh, I sat there in the seat. He the plane taxi down the wrong way and took off and ascended the law to the sky. The law enabled it to rise above the law of gravity. And so it is that the law and enables us with God's grace by the power of his spirit to live a life that tell condemning yourself that you're feeling guilty still think that you know there's go you're, you're inadequate as a Christian. Go on. We are children of God. Of God. And then we move on. God works for good. We may fail. And, you know, I do fall into temptation. God uses those mistakes, those things. You know, we cannot thwart God's purposes by our... Gone the wrong path, done something wrong. Confess it, as John tells us in his epistle, faithful to Christ. And God can use even those things for his purpose and for and will he not graciously also give us all things because you've done something giving it's not because of your conduct that God does to you because of Christ's upon your ticket from the love of Christ I hope there's no one here this morning still feeling tribulation distress Persecution, they're more than conquerors. Goodness, peril, they're not fighting the battle. It's Christ who has fought the battle and triumphed. And he is powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Have a left from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No condemnation. Thank you.